0: Now there was no bread in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the silver that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the silver was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread. Why should we die before your eyes? For our silver is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread in exchange for your livestock, if your silver is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our silver is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? by us and our land for bread. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die. And that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in, in your providential care for us by your word, that you have brought this text from Genesis 47 to us this day. And We pray that you would guide us and direct us in the truth by your Holy Spirit, that he would so direct us that we might see Christ all the more clearly and understand more fully how we are to serve him. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. It's officially tax season as W-2s are appearing or are being prepared for employees. Accountants are busy helping businesses and individuals prepare their returns. Deductibles and expenses are being calculated. And if I'm causing anyone to undue stress by bringing this up, my apologies. Paying taxes seems to be an inevitable aspect of living in a developed society. Whether through sales tax, income tax, or any other possible taxes that government institutions contrive. Well, in our text this morning, there's certainly an obvious element of government involvement in the lives of the Egyptian people, isn't there? In fact, some scholars are inclined to paint Joseph in a pretty bad light based on the actions he takes uh, during the years of the famine. Is he oppressing the people, taking advantage of their destitution, and making a land grab on behalf of Pharaoh? "...thereby indebting the people to Pharaoh, even enslaving them." It isn't hard to imagine how someone could come to that conclusion based on the information given in the text. And maybe some of you are thinking along similar lines, having just heard it read. Is this a moment of of failure in Joseph's life? Should this be viewed as a black mark against him? Is this simply a matter of him making the best of the situation, given the circumstances, and so some compromises had to be made somewhere? Well, you'll not be surprised to hear me say that I think we should read this account as portraying Joseph in a positive light and that the decrees and actions taken are wise and righteous. Joseph has been set forth again and again and again as a Christ figure since chapter 37, going through death and resurrection experiences, undergoing humiliation followed by exaltation. And even in this maybe somewhat strange and somewhat difficult text, we see Jesus and Joseph yet again. And as we begin to examine the text itself, first of all, notice what it's sandwiched between. Verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their little ones. Then what do we hear? What do we hear in verse 27? Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. See, the text almost gives the impression that Israel was virtually unaffected by the famine, whereas the Egyptian people are on the verge of collapse and annihilation. That's interesting to think about. But our text this morning is intensely focused on the Egyptians. Three times in three verses mention is made of the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. Canaan. then Canaan isn't mentioned again. It could be that we're to understand Canaan as simply an extension of Egypt, a lesser territory that was under the shadow of the world power that was Egypt. But also, since chapter 12, Canaan is code for the promised land. And so the combination of Egypt and the promised land indicates to us that the whole world is starving. That's something the text goes out of its way to impress upon us, not only by referring to Egypt and Canaan, but by clearly telling us there was no bread in all the land, for great was the famine. It was very severe, and these lands languished because of the famine. Two times in verse 13, we're told there's a famine, and a famine equals death. And why is there death? Because of sin. And what is part of the curse due to Adam's fall? The ground fights against man. It doesn't produce by the sweat of his nose. The ground seems to be winning. A new Savior is needed. A new Adam needs to come along to provide seed and make the land fruitful again. And that's who is set before us in Joseph in this story. Joseph is in Egypt and Israel and his sons. God's people are saved on account of obeying the word that came to them from Joseph. Had they remained in Canaan, likely they would have starved and died. And as we get into the details of Joseph's plan remember the significance of chapter 41 and the context that is set for us there, the preparations that Joseph ordered, made, and so forth, and how, how those were received positively by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This is the continuation of that story. Well, apparently the, the famine has intensified. We're in the later years of it, years four to seven, perhaps. The exact chronology is difficult to determine, but more drastic measures are taken for famine relief And basically, there are three phases that lead to the enslavement of the Egyptians. Phase one is seen in verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the silver that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the silver into Pharaoh's house. Uh, The text doesn't simply say money, but silver. And immediately, I hope you can appreciate the connection the writer is making and even the irony of it. Joseph was sold into slavery from Canaan into Egypt for 20 pieces of silver. And now he has collected all of the silver in Egypt and Canaan. But the people are coming to him for the grain. They're coming to him for food, for bread, for life. He's the source and he's supplying the world with food. The fact that all of the silver is brought into Pharaoh's house means that he's doing the job he's supposed to be doing for Pharaoh, building and glorifying Pharaoh's house, Joseph is still serving in this fashion. And keep in mind that Joseph is not acting like a tyrant because he's providing life for the people. Tyrannical rule results in death and Joseph is doing everything in his power to combat death. So silver for grain, silver for rations is phase one. Phase two is seen in verses 15 to 17 when the Egyptians exchanged their livestock for bread. There's no more silver for buying bread, so the Egyptians come to Joseph declaring, Give us bread, why should we die before your eyes, for our silver is gone. So Joseph instructs them to give their livestock, and the people do so, giving their horses, this is the first mention of horses in the Bible, flocks, herds, and donkeys. It could very well be that the people were mortgaging their livestock as to selling them outright, But given the severity of the famine, this would have been beneficial to them because now they don't have to worry as to how they're going to feed their livestock. The lives of the people, the lives of their families are threatened and it's better not to have to worry about how to feed animals as well. Also consider at the end of the last chapter that Pharaoh put Joseph's brothers in charge of his livestock by obtaining the livestock of the people. Then that means that Joseph's brothers are taking care of all of the livestock of Egypt because all of it now belongs to Pharaoh. And we shouldn't view this as political maneuvering on Joseph's part, but rather that the whole house of Israel has taken a position of shepherding the flocks, of being good and faithful stewards in Pharaoh's house, and serving the king and nation of Egypt. Now there's a time marker at the end of verse 17, indicating that the livestock exchange for bread spanned a year's time. Again, what year of the famine that was is hard to determine with precision. Maybe the fifth, uh, more likely the sixth year. Given the fact that back in 45 in verse chapter 45 and verse 6, Joseph stated there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And in verse 23, he gives them seed, could indicate that phase 3 is the seventh and final year of the famine. So let's consider some of the details of that in verses 18 to 22. In verse 18, the people come to Joseph, readily admitting that they don't have any more silver or livestock in order to obtain bread, And so they offer themselves their bodies and their land. Put another way, they're offering themselves as slaves. And here we see slavery leads to life. Joseph takes them up on their offer and now everything belongs to Pharaoh, not only because he's the king of Egypt, the ruler, but also legally. It's officially documented that he's the owner of it all. In verse 20, the writer recounts this taking place. And note again that the severity of the famine is mentioned. Things are so bad that the people have to resort to these measures of selling all of their fields to Pharaoh. Then in verse 21, depending on which translation you have, mentions many of the people being moved around by Joseph. Uh, the New King James reflects this. The ESV states they were enslaved. I'm inclined to think that Joseph is redistributing the people throughout uh, the land. That seems to make more, more sense. So likely resettling them closer to the cities that he would designated for grain storage. Back in chapter 41, the text more literally reads the people he caused to pass by, to pass over to him, to the cities. The verb used here has been used a number of times already in Genesis and most often in relation to passing or crossing over a river. But the text is clear to say that Joseph is the one causing them to pass by, that he is the source for the people moving to the cities and may very well have personally supervised the relocation project course there was an exception to this the priests they were able to retain their land as they were already a part of Pharaoh's house and receiving their needs through Pharaoh they were part of Pharaoh's royal court remember that Joseph was married to a priest's daughter in fact we were reminded of in the genealogy in the previous chapter priests in the priestly land are exempted which is an arrangement we later see in Israel's history The Levites served Yahweh the king and he provided for them through the tithes of the people that's basically the same thing here But I want to bring your attention to a couple of interesting details that help us to further understand the context for this account, as well as the theology of the text. Note again verse 19, where the people not only ask for bread, but also for seed, that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. See, one of the real dangers resulting from the famine would be for the land itself to literally become a desert. By planting seed again, that would help the ground. But also, notice the progression that's indicated here from seed to bread. You know, how do you get bread? Well, first by planting seed, by planting the grain from which you can make bread. And what does bread indicate? Taking dominion of the land, the work of men's hands. The seed is planted, the grain is harvested, then it's ground into flour, and then that's used to, to make bread, which requires fire of some kind in order to bake it, etc. That's a whole process of taking dominion. And what else might that entail? Well, possibly the use of animals. But once you make bread, then you can also sell it, and other people would buy it with silver. In other words, you have a developed society. What has the famine caused Egypt to become? An undeveloped society, in a manner of speaking. They no longer have silver, but now are asking for C their entire cultural system is on the verge of death. As one pastor observes, Egypt is a society that has gone beyond a lower bartering system to a more complex system of exchanging currency for goods and services. Egypt is a developed culture with more complex e- with a more complex economic system. It is a city-state that has moved from garden agricultural only to a city agriculture plus other goods and services take away all the money and the society has regressed from city to garden. The whole cultural system, the whole world system has been decreated, broken down to its lowest level. In other words, that world has died. This whole progression informs us of what's going on because this pattern has already occurred in scripture elsewhere. In order to make a new world, the old world that has been corrupted by sin must be put to death, like with the flood. The seed son, Joseph, has gone through this The firstborn sons of Israel have followed him and have gone through this. Now the whole world system, as represented by Egypt, is going through this. But this world system is now being decreated through the death of famine and will be taken up, transformed, and put into proper order by Joseph, the true man, the true Adam, whose responsibility it is to take dominion over all the earth. To summarize this, the present world system, which inevitably leads to death, must be brought to this death so that it can be raised up to a new life, the way God intended it to be. So that's, that's the bigger picture and the theology of the text that we should see and grasp. And remember, in the last chapter, when Jacob appears before Pharaoh, who is a God-fearer, a Christian, and Jacob testifies to the difficult life that he's lived, that God called him to live by faith, and how he was essentially instructing the young and faith Pharaoh, what can sometimes be involved in being Christian, It can be a life of wrestling and affliction. And Pharaoh took to heart what Jacob said, evidenced in the departing blessing Jacob gave to the king of Egypt. Well, here's the whole nation of Egypt now getting a taste of that as they are, as a converted nation, are having to undergo the affliction that comes with the life of faith. And note again, Egypt is now having to experience, in some measure, the affliction and slavery Joseph endured. All of Egypt is going through their own Joseph experience, their own form of death and humiliation, even as the brothers did in previous chapters. But in the life of faith where there is death and humiliation, there is also the hope of life and exaltation, which is what we begin to see in verses 23 to 26. In verse 23, Joseph declares that he's bought the people and the land for Pharaoh, and now he's the source of the seed. The promised seed provides seed and instructs the people to sow the land. This indicates the famine is coming to an end. There's reason for hope. Joseph's instructions, not only here, but in all of the decisions that he has made, show his faith and trust in God's revelation that the famine would cease at the appointed time he ordained. Then in verse 24, we see that Joseph establishes a form of taxation. And what's the tax rate? One-fifth, 20% could very well be that 10% went to Pharaoh and the other 10% to the priests. The people would have had four-fifths, 80%, from which they could make bread, have seed for planting more crops, in order for them to feed themselves, their households themselves, and their their little ones. For all intents and purposes, what Joseph established is something very much like the feudal system of the Middle Ages. Pharaoh's lands are distributed among the people, and they work the land, giving 20% of their yield to Pharaoh, and keeping 80% for themselves. Now, we might be inclined to think that 20% tax, a uh, 20% tax seems high or unreasonable, but in the ancient world, it was pretty low. And we don't know what they, what the tax rates were before Joseph made this decree. It could have been more than 20%. Uh, one historical source indicates that taxation for some farmers was one half to two thirds of their produce. Another cited one third for grain and one half for fruit trees. 20% is certainly less than 33%, and a 20% tax rate isn't so bad by some standards, even in our modern society. Uh, before my parents moved from Maryland to Georgia in 2002, they were paying somewhere in the neighborhood of 33% of their income in taxes. A current chart I found the other day notes that some of the higher income gainers of the, in the U.S. pay up to upwards of 37% in taxes. So once again, Joseph is showing himself to be a wise, even a gracious ruler. And the people's confession in verse 25 is integral to our rightly reading this text. You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph is the Savior. He saved Egypt and thereby saved the world. And given the circumstances, this form of slavery is really freedom. The people are glad to be free as Pharaoh's slaves. In our modern society, we tend to think that any form of slavery is inherently bad or evil, but that's not always the case. Liberty, freedom, is not something that's experienced in the abstract, but always in relations and experiences. Sometimes the very freedom people clamor for can turn out to be a form of slavery, especially if they don't have the capacity or means to handle the freedom. Consider this insight. Man, and by extension, societies can only handle responsibility when they mature to that point. Responsibility is given little by little. So in light of the fact that Egypt is coming out of a pagan situation, is being reborn, it would seem wise to have a father like Joseph treat the society like children in order to bring them along. Although the Egyptians are made slaves in one sense and have to give up certain things, nevertheless, they are allowed to continue to work, maintaining some of their God-given dignity. And in this case, a benevolent dictatorship is certainly preferable to starvation and anarchy. If a society is coming out of paganism, which means it's inherently childish and immature, then a benevolent dictatorship or monarchy might be exactly what's needed for the society to prosper until it can handle more responsibility. Of course, it's often the case that dictators don't want to give up power, but that's an abuse. An abuse doesn't automatically negate principle rule by a single person isn't necessarily condemned in scripture but abuse or tyranny is and so an authority particularly a wise one governing everyone can be a good thing consider we live in a time in a country that has developed along the lines of biblical principles what we are seeing with the overregulation and the people looking to the state as the savior is a regression back into immaturity and possibly downright paganism but this also applies in the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the world and graciously distributes things as he will. He governs the world, not just in general, but in particulars. So this government structure is set on a universal scale. So Joseph enacts a form of government that's far superior to any form of communism, socialism, or welfare state mentality. And notice what the final verse tells us. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. See, the the reforms that Joseph enacted outlasted Joseph. They were still being practiced to this day, to the time when the writer wrote this portion of the story. And who better to be that author than Moses, who was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians? So in this text of Genesis, we should understand that Joseph isn't portrayed as an oppressive tyrant, but as a gracious Savior. And to further solidify this in our minds, consider a couple of summary points, as, as well as some principles for for our own life and faith. You know, if this, if this text is kind of like a stream of water, we have a bucket, what, what can we carry home with us? Well, first, God created this situation. He brought it to pass, and Genesis 41 tells us that Joseph's actions were wise. The text of Scripture insists these are righteous acts. Second, the text is trying to create a sense of amazement for us, the reader, that people could live through seven years of famine. I don't think we grasp how, how, how bad it, uh, how bad it was, but a worldwide famine that lasted seven years had decimating effects. Yet the Egyptians survived because of Joseph. Again, Joseph is the Savior, the source of life, the bread of life, the seed of life, not only to the house of Israel as we've seen in previous chapters, but also now to Gentile nations. Third, biblically speaking, men cannot be absolutely free. They are always in bondage to someone, God, or else the enemies of God. Of course, men in bondage to God are truly free, and men in bondage to other men or in bondage to sin and the fear of the death, and the fear of death are not free. The fact that Pharaoh was converted and that Joseph is Pharaoh's counselor, even a father to Pharaoh means that slavery to this government is far better than freedom in a pagan society. The Scriptures teach that all men are slaves. We either serve God or Satan. We are either slaves of sin or slaves to righteousness, as Paul states in Romans 6. And if you are a slave to righteousness, a slave of Christ, then you are truly free. You are living as God created you to be. And only in Christ, the bread of life, Will you not starve to death? We also need to recognize that the program for freedom from tyranny, the spread of democracy and liberty that's promoted by the United States, isn't the real answer for the world's problems for what plagues other nations because man cannot be totally free. Only God is totally free. And what men need most is not freedom but a new master, the only true master because he knows how to rule perfectly perfectly offering his slaves true freedom and true security in him. And when we recognize what we've been given in Christ, then that should result in thanksgiving. We should be an ever thankful people. the, The declaration of the Egyptians to Joseph is our declaration to Jesus. You have saved us. Thank you for rescuing us from sin and death. And we readily recognize that we have nothing apart from his gracious provision, all that we have been given as a gift from our king. And so we reply in turn, May it please you, Lord, that we will be your servants, your slaves, for you, our king. And finally, this story teaches us that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of individual men, women, and children. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. Consider Joseph as a type of Christ reveals to us what the work of Christ was and is. Joseph brought the old world system to its death in order to raise up a new world system. This is what Christ does. When Jesus says in John 3.17 that God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, he meant just that. God created this world to look a particular way. He had a purpose for it from the beginning. Sin has perverted, distorted, and caused some obstacles to be overcome. But sin has not defeated the purpose of God. God is not about to admit defeat to sin. He's not going to abandon his creation. He's not going to abandon this world system to Satan and his seed. Jesus Christ came to turn the world upside down, destroy it, and leave a seed that would be fruitful and fill the earth. He intended to make a new world, defeating sin at every point, that it distorted God's purpose. That will happen. That means we have an interest in the world system. We may not use political levers and the machinery in place to change everything, but we have an interest, and in are to be speaking to the way system, wait to the way the system operates. Who knows? It may be our slavery and death that will transform the present world system, but it will happen. Joseph, as the faithful Adam, patiently waited and wisely ruled when he was given the opportunity, and so we are called to this. Basically the same, to to faithfully stand at the ready, for the same in the midst of 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 a decaying culture and dying society, realistic about what is going on around us, while at the same time recognizing that Jesus, our ascended king, rules this situation, even as he rules this nation and the world, and is bringing all of these circumstances to pass for the sake of the kingdom of heaven upon earth. And what wisdom do we have to offer? God's Word, that speaks to all of life. And in order to speak to others, we need to be ever cultivating our knowledge of the Scriptures, which make us wise unto salvation, and which thoroughly equip us for the pursuit of righteousness and obedience to our gracious Master. And despite the present challenges, and perhaps even the more significant ones that may be ahead of us, nevertheless, we can remain expectant and hopeful in the resurrected Savior, who brings from death, life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word and do pray that you would be pleased to use it to bear fruit in our lives to your honor and glory. May we be all the more faithful in obedience to your word. May you direct us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. To these ends we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.